Welcome to Real Leaders Radio, bringing you the story behind the story of the most innovative, authentic leaders we know. And now, here's your host, Sue Heilbronner. Hey again, everybody. Thanks for coming back to Real Leaders Radio. I'm sure you figured this out, but every episode of this podcast is featuring an absolutely extraordinary leader of a startup or a big company telling their true authentic backstory. So here today, totally willing to do that is Scott Meyer, CEO of Ghostery, a company most of you probably can look up and see on your computer right now. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Scott, the way we start this podcast is we ask the interviewee to just give us a three or four minute life story. So go. Well, I'll, I'll go in reverse. So I'm the CEO of Ghostry and on the business side, I've been doing this for almost seven years. My background before starting Ghostry, and we'll talk more about what the company does, uh, was largely in publishing. I spent eight years at the New York Times company, was the CEO of About.com when they owned it, and previous to that ran the New York Times on the web. And before I got into digital media and technology, I had a fairly traditional background for someone who came out of business school. I, I went to Brown undergraduate and worked on Wall Street for a couple of years, went to business school at Harvard, and then went to work at the Boston Consulting Group. And at 28, found myself realizing I wanted to do something much more challenging and interesting, despite the risk profile being higher. And that led me to go to a startup called Multex in 1998, which we later took public and then eventually sold to Reuters. Uh, personally, I grew up uh, in New York and then in Philadelphia. And now I live outside of New York City. I've got two kids and an awesome wife, as well as the two awesome kids. And uh, I think the experience of starting the company from scratch and living through the ups and downs has been one that if you knew about it going in, would you make the same decisions? Yeah, probably. But it, it sure would have been a whole lot easier. And just like having kids or buying a house or doing anything else big, no matter what everybody tells you, they're not going to be able to tell you the whole story because everyone is going to experience it differently. So th the best advice I give to people is just to ask questions about what other people's secrets to success and more importantly, failures have been and just try to keep an eye on it. And then the rest of it is just enjoy the ride because, you know, it's a roller coaster. Sometimes you screaming with exhilaration. Uh, sometimes you're feeling dizzy and like you want to puke. And sometimes you just want to get off. Overall, I still love roller coasters. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that's probably your preferred way of living. So, Scott, yeah. you have as fancy a resume as any startup leader I've ever met. I uh, did all the right things, including your early jobs, which were highly credential type jobs. How has that served you and how does it disserve you leading a rough and tumble startup? So I'll tell you where it probably disserved me the most. So, yeah, for better or worse, a lot of these highly competitive, high profile jobs early in your career are certainly easier to get if you have that type of an academic pedigree. And then I went to the New York Times where it actually worked against me because not only does nobody care where you went to school, uh, in some ways there's, there's definitely people who are, are gunning for you. I think it has a combination of your age. So I got to the New York Times and I was the general manager of the New York Times and the web and I was 30. I was probably at that time the most senior outsider that they'd ever hired. So that's both good and bad. Some of the maturation process is understanding not only does nobody care where you went to school, people who come in with big resumes can at times give off the impression that they truly only care about themselves. In bigger companies, sometimes that's almost, it's actually true. A mentor of mine, when I, I got the job running about.com, which was my first CEO job, 
he said it's pretty simple, man. And and he said you've got this pedigree. It's great you worked really hard and you're good at school. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When you lose sight of that, that's when your academic pedigree, if you will, will work against you. To that end, since it's not that easy to tell how much somebody really cares when you're just interviewing them, how do you think about the kind of pedigree you have in the context of hiring people at your company? For us, and it's interesting how things have really changed, because every year that goes by, you have more people with a pedigree that is directly relevant to what we do. So 15, 20 years ago when we all got into this, you couldn't find somebody who knew about digital media because it didn't exist. And so you had folks that, that came in uh, just from other areas who were smart people and they figured it out. Now you have people who are graduating from undergrad with specific degrees in digital media. And you can look at their, their resume and know that they have the types of backgrounds that will at least enable them to to do the work. But that, yeah, I tell you, the, the doing of the work piece, especially now when I look at hiring people, because uh, I still interview every person. We're about 115 people in the company. We've added probably 30 people this year, and we keep growing, except for the most senior people. By the time someone gets to me, I already know that they can do the work. It's entirely about cultural fit, and that fit is essential because, uh, man, it doesn't matter how smart they are. It matters, do they get what we're doing and do they really want to be here? And that's that's essential because if they don't want to be here, if they view, there's a line between it just being a job and it being a cult. And as long as you can hit the middle of that, which is it's, it's not a cult, but you take your job seriously, but you still don't take yourself too seriously so you can have a good time and think what we do is cool. That to me is is the, the difference between success and failure in our business. Let's create a little context for the people listening who may not already have a ghostery on their machine. Let's, most people have a pretty myopic view of what ghostery is, and you and I have talked over the years, so I have a little bit of a sense of the range of things the company does. So just lay it out for us. What is ghostery? So ghostery makes the web not suck. We're a software company that consumers use to make their web experience cleaner, faster, and safer. We make the web's most popular browser extension and iPhone app for controlling how your data is collected and used online. So millions of people use our service. It's installed more than 30,000 times every day, and it's been installed globally more than 50 million times. So people use it to see how their data is being collected, and they can control how they're being collected in terms of the ads that they see, how fast websites perform, and really just controlling what information they're sharing with the internet. The way we make money is that when you install Ghostry, we ask you to anonymously opt in to share data with us. We don't know anything about you, we just know how the websites you visit are performing with respect to how fast they are, what technology they use, how secure they are, and we aggregate, package this data up into a software platform that we sell to big companies to make their own websites cleaner and faster and safer. So we really view it as businesses and consumers have the same problem. There's this big, messy, Frankenstack ecosystem of technology that powers the websites you love. But both for consumers and businesses, if it's not under control, you're not having the experience that you deserve. That's what we do. Did the company start with a free product and then migrate into a monetization strategy serving enterprises? We came at it uh, a little bit from the side. So like most companies who are our age and our size, where we're going is not necessarily where we expected to start. So 
the business was initially envisioned as the technology backend of the Ad Choices program. So most people have seen those little blue icons. They look like a little uh, smiley shark, a blue triangle in the corner of most of the display ads on the website. When you click on one of those ads, it's a nutrition label, essentially. It enables you to see which companies are collecting your data and opt out of the ad tracking you. That was the original thesis of the business. That program, it's a self, what's called a self-regulatory program, where the online advertising industry in the US, Europe, and Canada got together and was able to convince the government to let them regulate themselves. So that was the original idea. I was uh, an entrepreneur in residence at Warburg Pincus, who are our, our lead investors, and just came up with this idea through a long series of things that we can talk about later. We ran that business out for about three years, and in the process, we bought the Ghost Street browser extension because there was data and technology from the browser extension that we needed to make our piece of the Ad Choices program work. When we bought Ghostery, which was the browser extension, it was six and a half years ago, it was very small and it didn't have, didn't have a business model. And initially we just bought it to make Ad Choices work. And then over the next couple, three years, a uh, couple, some key changes happened. The first one was that Ghostery became incredibly popular. We developed it for all five leading browsers, for iOS, for Android, and it just took off. In addition, the privacy laws in Europe changed, and companies needed to have much more visibility and control over how their websites were, were working. So in the summer of 2012, we started getting phone calls from companies saying, I'm using your browser extension. I see all this technology that's powering my site that I have no idea how it got there. And now I need to know, because initially I have to comply with these new complex laws in Europe. And boy, there's a lot of questions that are coming out of what I'm seeing from your extension. Can you build me a software platform? So, you know, of course, like any good set of entrepreneurs, we said yes. And we sold over a million dollars of contracts in 120 days. And by the end of 2012, we had realized we were now in a totally different business. That moved us from what was essentially an ad technology compliance business into a, a web analytics software business. And that transition has been very successful now, but it's not easy. It's really painful. And that's where the extension fits in because that data from real ghost users gives our solution tremendous utility that is, we think, not a, it's not something you can find anywhere else. Scott, how, were there any issues surrounding the transition between what I think is a really almost rebellious community of plug-in users and migrating into an enterprise strategy for monetization? How did that go for the company? So funnily enough, that initial set of rebellious users of the browser extension were a lot easier to transition over than the rebellious group of people that we started the company internally with, <laughs> ironically. <clears throat> and the reason for that is Ghostry is fantastic. It also has a lot of competition in that space. What you see happening there is that the really hardcore people who think that all software on the Internet should be free and open source, they started off using Ghostry. And then when it became clear that it was a business, they said, oh, you can't trust Ghostry because they are a for-profit business. And we said, well, that's your opinion. But we're completely transparent in exactly what we do with your data, you get the same exact product whether you opt in to share data with us or not. And here's all the code. And it's not open source, but it's out there on the web so you can see exactly what we do with your data. So by being fully transparent with that group, because part of that rebellious anti-establishment type of 
user, they're also extremely technically savvy. What they believe is that there's a conspiracy. But when you show them all the data, and it's not just the legalese, it's more importantly, it's the code. They look at the code and they're like, all right, cool. They don't want to use us. They don't want to use us. Uh, so, you know, there's noise here and there, but that hasn't really been the issue. Uh, frankly, it's more like the, the bigger pushback we've gotten from Ghoster users was when we changed the interface in uh, February. We launched on Firefox with a new interface and people went bananas because we took away some features and moved some things around that hadn't been changed in about five years. And that, that was much more severe than the fact that we were a business. Wow. Well, you talked about your internal stakeholders. Can you talk a little bit about what transitions were required to deal with some, the resistance inside? There's two trends, two, two natural transition points in the maturation of a company. And we hit them both at the same time, and that was really hard. So one is just the natural transition into adolescence as a company. And just like adolescence for people, it's an awkward, funny time because you're still sort of a kid, but you look and have to act like a grown-up. And for us, that came from that normal transition of you know, a lot of that rebellious, we're going to break rules, we don't care, we're just going to, we're going to go for it. That's exactly what makes you successful when you have no revenue and no customers. And then once you have customers and a lot of revenue, it's exactly what can lead you to fail because you now have to serve big companies who are counting on you and millions and millions and millions of people who are counting on you. And inherently, your flexibility goes down. That's that first transition. You need a different type of person and a different set of processes. And you have to add more, you know, more structure, which is, is not always something that startup people enjoy. And then in parallel, we went from being uh, essentially an ad technology company with a great browser extension into becoming an enterprise software business with a SaaS solution. And the types of people, tech, technical backend you need, all that kind of stuff changes. And so for us, it actually led us to uh, build a brand new engineering operation, not in New York. So we were headquartered in New York. And two years ago, 100% uh, of the company's engineering and product was done here in New York. And we looked at the types of people that we needed and the scale, and we decided to actually move that engineering operation to Sandy, Utah. Right outside Salt Lake and City. Right outside, yeah, it's uh, midway between Salt Lake City and Provo, Utah. And it now has, was the best move we could have made, but man, it was painful because we turned over a lot of people in the company. And just because somebody knows they're not a part of the future and it's not a job that they want to do and you have to make other changes, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to volunteer and say, gosh, it's really time for me to leave. Thanks. Th thanks for, for giving me this opportunity to leave the company. <laughs> it's really painful. Uh, but we did it. And now we're, um, I think we're in a great spot. And the numbers show it. Scott, what are the costs of holding on to legacy people that might not be aligned with a vision for the future? I know that as a leader, I think you move extremely quickly. I wonder if you see it that way. I think a lot of people see the costs of laying people off or letting people find their next thing, but they don't see the costs of keeping them. I, yeah, I, I appreciate that it looks like we move really quick. I still think we move too slow. Man, it's excruciating because it's not, these, none of these are bad people. These are folks that a lot of them were, when we were 30 people, we were all jammed into this, this crappy sublet with no air conditioning at times working around the clock. And you then have to have a hard conversation that they're not part of the future. So you actually, once you start having that inkling that someone's not gonna be a part of the future, 
once you see yourself working around them, either because they don't have the skill set that you know the company needs, uh, or they just they're not exhibiting the attitude, they're starting to phone it in. Well, you just have to move. And as unpleasant and painful and as it is, it's way worse to keep them around, unfortunately, because what you're seeing is the CEO is a small slice of what's actually happening in the rest of your organization. And if if you're seeing trends that you don't like in terms of how someone's contributing to the company or not, well, it's, you have to assume it's gonna be amplified five to 10X. The longer you let it sit around your company, it's going to metastasize in ways that you'll regret. It sucks, but man, the alternative is just so, so much worse. And the way, the way to bridge that gap is just you have to tell people the truth. You have to speak frankly and be very generous with the packages. And that was uh, that was something that not was that was not always well understood internally, and certainly our board at times was really amazed that they, they felt like we were being too generous on the severance. But I uh, I'm a big devotee of uh, Ben Horowitz, and Horowitz in, in his book The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he talks a lot about about that, and some of it is karma because if if you know it's going to be it'll be your turn. Like it's, it was my turn at one point when I was at the New York times where it's just clear, it's not working out. You hope that you are treated fairly, which I was, you know, I still have a great relationship with the folks at the times. Uh, and also just because someone's not working out now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't work out great for two or three or four or five years. And so they've earned that and you're going to see them again. So you have to treat them fairly, but you have to put the best interest of the company first. You just have to. So now you're in a company and I think these two places that you're located are extremely different. So you're in the heart of kind of not, I know you're not really a startup, but you know, fast growth companies in New York. And then you have this dev shop, significant office outside of Salt Lake. Yep. Those two cultures environmentally and the people who will show up at those two offices, I imagine are quite different. Can you talk oh, yeah. a little yeah, can you talk a little bit about how those differences have been challenging and also how they've helped? Yeah, I, I imagine there's some real benefits to your company culture in New York by virtue of having a company in Utah and just talk a little bit about the differences. Absolutely. And you have to add in not just the geographic differences, but the Utah office is almost all product and engineering. And New York is almost entirely sales, marketing, and, uh, and front office. Yeah, you've got very different personalities, very different demographics, the whole thing, as you'd expect. And it's worked out great for us. It really has. And it goes back to the culture piece because you have to bring people on in both offices who share the mission of what we're trying to achieve and get it. And what's cool about being a technology company, especially one that has this extremely popular piece of consumer software, the Ghost Tree browser extension, is that pretty much to a person, when we're interviewing somebody for a technical role, they already have been using the browser extension for years. So they're walking in inherently appreciative of what's been done. And a lot of that work is done by the folks, you know, the marketing of it, the PR, social media, and even the, the actually the front end uh, B2C consumer browser app, browser extensions actually is developed here in New York. So right away, there's an immediate form of respect across office for what's been achieved in both places. And then the sense of the common mission is what keeps the offices together. And it's worked out great. I, 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 when I look at the, quote, communications issues, frankly, it, I'd much rather have two offices of people who are deeply committed and understand the culture than folks sitting in the same room who, you know, you can, you can communicate poorly to somebody who's sitting right next to you. 
if you're not on the same page. And I, I, we, we, we do invest a lot in it. Uh, we get the entire company together, either in New York or in Utah, twice a year. And that's not cheap, but it's essential. And we spend, uh, we're, we're, very, uh, we're, we're, we're a very good customer of uh, Hyatt and Delta because they're the, <laughs> so they know us well. And, and we even have a live Skype hookup between the New York and Utah offices. So you can physically see everybody. That's great. And uh, when I when I stack up the set of challenges that you can put in front of your business, uh, fortunately for us, this one has not been one at all. It's quite the reverse. It's a huge advantage. So would you ever have another technology group headquartered in on either coast, or do you think kind of is Utah become an unfair advantage for the company? Ha. Well. It depends on the type of business. Uh, for what we are doing on the enterprise software side, uh, Utah is pretty darn hard to beat, although I'm sure folks from different uh, economic development uh, authorities <laughs> not on the coast listening to this will, will bombard me with emails that I'm missing the point. It depends <laughs> on what your tech is. It's also supply and demand. It's always better off if you can have everybody in the same space. But this is the third company I've run in New York City, and every time if it's uh, pretty much to a person, unless you are going to raise an unbelievable amount of money and, and go from 25, 30 developers to 300 developers in a very short period of time, you will likely run out of gas in New York. Yeah. Uh, I've, never run a, I've never run a company in, uh, based in Silicon Valley, so I can't speak to that. But what happens is once you get past that initial startup phase, where you're not just, you know, where there's more than 25 of you in the company and you're getting into the sort of 20, 30 developers and product people, you're not hiring startup people and the company is a more mature and you're now competing against startups, grabbing your people, and you're also at the same time competing against much, much, much bigger companies yep. on, on the tech side plus all the banks. Scott, over the last year, and I forgot exactly when it was, you had kind of a bad day with respect to ad blockers and that whole discussion on mobile. Can you talk a little bit about that? We had a really interesting day, yeah. So we were briefly a part of the most popular paid app in the world for 36 hours, and then we and the developer pulled it off, pulled it down, gave everybody their money back. Why did we do that? In September of 2015, the Apple folks changed how uh, apps work on the iOS 9 platform. And it meant that uh, they wanted to severely limit how much data third-party apps could get access to from Safari. And they opened up an API for essentially building uh, ways to block content, which includes block the ads. Well, while Ghostery itself is not an ad blocker, uh, you can use the technology to block all sorts of scripts, which include ad scripts. And we initially uh, worked with a developer who came to us and said, I'm, I'm going to develop this thing on my own, and I'd like to use your, your script library, your IP, but I'm going to do all the work, and you know we'll, we'll, we'll work out a revenue share model. Well, what did we learn from it? Uh, we looked at it as a beta. We always thought, well, gosh, this would be really interesting if we, is there another monetization path other than just giving the software away for free? And what we didn't do is we didn't really research. So this is, this is I think, the difference between startup and, and more mature company. Startup, you would be like, yeah, let's just let's try it. 
the tech the tech works. Let's just try it. But when you have a you know when you have an eight figure business in revenues and over four hundred customers, uh, they have a, a completely legitimate role in understanding what you're doing and how it may or may not impact their business. <clears throat> and we didn't get enough feedback from them before we launched. And it went out. We also never expected it to be that popular. And boom, it takes off and it's the most popular paid app in the world for 36 hours. And our clients, they ask the right questions, which is, is your business model in conflict with ours? And is this the user experience? Because the way the user experience came out was very different than how Ghostry works. And that was where we made some mistakes in the product development process. And so we looked at it and pulled it down. And uh, yeah, it was a bad day. Uh, we made some mistakes, but really the only only uh, mistake of its type that I think we've made in the seven years, and we have a lot of great clients. Uh, we didn't lose a single client on the enterprise side as a result of this. Uh, and we learned some very, very important lessons about how you balance the needs of all the different people who are part of your company. And we made some, some real changes to how we do things going forward. And so it was a very painful lesson. We could have learned it in ways that were less stressful but at the end of the day, it was it was the right it was the, it was a good thing for the business, but still not fun. One thing people may not know, but if they go back and look at this story, is I really appreciated that at that time your authentic communication with your stakeholders and with the market mm -hmm. about making a mistake. Uh, I yeah. thought that was just fantastic, and there are a lot of large much larger companies who could really take a cue from how you handled that from a transparency perspective. And I think it's one of the reasons it went away a lot more quickly than it might have otherwise. So that was great. Well, I appreciate that. Sure. Thanks. So I want to turn my attention a little bit back toward your personal leadership style. And the first thing I want to know is I have a theory that we've all received some piece of suggestive, corrective, or even negative feedback for basically our entire life and certainly our entire career. And it's the one thing we know we have to learn the most and we work on it and we work on it and we work on it. And then we have not our best day and we get exactly that feedback again. And usually we get it in our personal life and our professional life. So I'm curious, do you have a piece of feedback like that? And what is it? <laughs> uh, I've got more than one, uh, man. So the first one, so my, 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 my dad and I were very close and he passed away three years ago yesterday. And when we were kids, he gave us this advice. He just, it was very simple. My dad was somewhat of a gruff guy, grew up in Brooklyn during the depression. And he said, he said, son, don't be an asshole. Nobody likes an asshole. <laughs> okay, so that's some pretty darn sage advice. Uh, I think the second one was what I talked about before, which is that nobody, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think the final one for me, I, I'm pretty cynical about a lot of the corporate leadership training, especially that's done at big companies. But there was one piece of training that we did at, at the New York Times that, that stuck with me. And we had, we all did 360s. So I was, this, this is when I was, uh, gosh, where was I? What job at the Times? I guess I was uh, probably running about.com. No, I think I was, I was, I did a two year stint on the print side of the Boston Globe. And they did these 360 reviews. And then they brought in specialists to go through it with us. And we worked through, they took us off site for a couple of days. It was, it was really eye opening. And I think that the, the piece, that, that, that stuck with me out of that. Uh, we spent a lot of time looking at Jim Collins, Good to Great, and the concept of level five leadership. 
which is this concept that great leaders don't claw their way to the top, they're carried there. And I was still pretty young at the time, I was probably 33, 34 years old, and uh, I was only you know six, seven years out of, out of, you know, essentially when you come out of college, work on Wall Street, a couple years in business school, a couple years in a fancy consulting firm, um, it is entirely not level five. It is, because you're working pretty much by yourself to deliver projects, so it's about how well can I do? It's you're not. It maybe has changed. Obviously, I haven't been in that environment for over 20 years, but that's very much how you're socialized. Uh, going back from when we were all in in, in uh, high school, that's exactly the wrong way to be a CEO and, and lead the company. Uh, folks have to truly feel like you are working for them, not the other way around. If they feel like you're, because if they feel like you're going to help their career, they will lay it out for you. You don't always get it right because you also have to make some really crappy decisions that people don't love. But if people feel like you're being straight with them, and you just, we're, we're transparent to a fault here. Uh, we actually post, we have a rolling slideshow in the office here that shows exactly how we're doing and all of our key metrics, including financial ones. And we update it every week. Uh, public companies would lose their minds. I mean, you actually you probably couldn't do that in a public company legally, but we do. And we have outsiders, you know, people coming in, they see it, here's our biggest customers. Here's how we're doing, and we just give it to everybody straight. Okay. Um, and if you, you know, if you're if you're not holding anything back, you, you never have to. The beauty of not, of of not lying is you never have to remember what you told. Right. Everybody. So those are three really really sage pieces of advice on your, that that correspond with your philosophy of leadership. What I'm looking for in addition to that is. I, Scott Meyer, would be an even better leader if I could just yeah. learn blank better or do a better job at it what's still left for would, you to learn so i i wouldn't say i have a short fuse but i there are certain things that really make me nuts and i would be an even better leader if when i see something that's really really making me nuts and i start getting frustrated by it if i could fast forward to after i calm back down <laughs> what the impact of my reaction is going to be well, I guess it's it's not only the impact of your reaction, right? It's it's that you also get more perspective on what it is that you were actually reacting to. Right, exactly. Because usually what, what you lose your mind over is not actually the problem. It's usually a symptom of something else. That's great. I like that a lot. Thanks for sharing that. So what really sets you apart as a leader? What are the inherent things about you that make you great? <laughs> That's a really hard question. Oh, I don't know. I... I Part of it is I love what I do. I really, I, I, I like being the CEO. And not everybody does because there are parts of it that are pretty lonely. Like I am ultimately responsible. And so that means I have to set an example every day because if I do it, then it's okay for everybody else to do it. And you, ha you can only run a company successfully if there's one set of rules. Once you start letting folks have multiple sets of rules, and I've made that mistake with my directs, I've let people... Uh, play by different sets of rules. It's it's not it's not only is it anarchy. It becomes a very dangerous culture. I mean, you you worked with us and you saw what was happening. I think I just what I hope sets me apart is that uh, nobody nobody doubts how seriously I'm taking this and my commitment to the business. I'm ne I'm never phoning it in. That's the first piece. I think the second one is that I I'm extremely direct, but I do that only to dispense with the bullshit and get everybody the information they need. And not everybody is accustomed to that. It can be very, uh, it can be bracing for some folks at first who are not used to, they're like, so what are you really saying? I'm like, I'm really saying what I'm saying. There's nothing else to say. I need this <laughs> to be done, or this is what I want to make sure you understand. They're like, what do you really mean? I'm like, 
I just really mean this. You know, and I think the final piece, though, is that uh, I, I care a lot about this place and, and the people that work here because I know that everybody who works for us could get a job tomorrow where they make a lot more money and or where they wouldn't have to work quite as hard as they do here. So it's, it's incumbent on me to try to create an environment that people love being a part of. And it's nice because I now that especially this company, since I got to start it from scratch. And when I think back to seven years ago and the, the folks I, I co-founded the company with, we I remember sitting around saying I, I would like us and we all agreed. We said we want to build a company that has all the best things from places that we worked before and none of the stuff we really hated. I think mindful sort of self-aware leaders know that there's a certain kind of person that no matter what they're doing, that leader is doing he or she needs to have that kind of person right in the next office, just like that yeah. set of skills that's mm -hmm. totally complementary and it solves your downsides. So mm -hmm. what is that type of person that you need to have? Oh, it's the mind reader. <laughs> of course. You, need to have, you have to have the mind reader. Great. So, so, so the mind reader's job is to be the person who is – there to somewhat hold up the mirror to your actions and the company to say, are you thinking about this and or I need you to understand what's going on here because you are, you know, maybe you haven't been around enough because you are, you know, you're fundraising. So you've been out of the office for 10 days or you, you know, you came into the office and you had conference calls from 830 to four o'clock in the afternoon. So you haven't actually walked the floor to see what's going on. It's, it's that type of thing. It's just somebody to, to remind you what's going on. And it's also, it's a culture where it is your team knowing this, I don't need to bother Scott with this or who I got to bother Scott with this. And it's knowing what those couple of things are. And I think we do that really well. I don't often see surprises that pop up in our business that we could have avoided. So what we know, this is the leadership advice of today from Scott at Ghostry is just get yourself a mind reader and you'll be all set. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's extremely yeah. actionable. Uh, Scott, it's as always great to be with you. Thanks for sharing your real direct thoughts with our podcast listeners. Have a great day. And thanks everyone for joining us today on Real Leaders Radio. To hear other episodes of this podcast or learn more about Sue Heilbronner, visit us at realleadersradio.com.